Dear Heavenly Father, we have weeks in which we come to you in, in uh, moments of need and in which our mind is focused very much on who you are and your provision or your power to heal or your ability to solve the dilemmas of our life that we can't escape from in our own power, Father. And when we come in those minds, we, uh, we come with this expectation that because we're here or because we incline ourselves to you or because we are uh, mindful of you, that that might do all the more to persuade you to ask to meet our needs. And then there's perhaps days, Father, when our minds are elsewhere, when the world is pressed upon us to such a degree that we can't seem to take our attention off of it and put it onto you. And then we perhaps wonder later if we were even attentive to what you said. And, Father, I pray this night tonight would be one in which you remind us that you don't ask us to perform for you so that you will do for th- things for us, but you ask us, Father, to sit at your feet. And I also ask, Father, that the word tonight would remind us that even when the world is pressing upon us, there is no better place to be than in your word. For this world is passing away so that those things that press so hard now will be gone in an instant. And those things that we might learn when we incline ourselves to listen are the things that will remain. And it is hard to hear that and understand it in this day, Father, when the world seems so real and things we read in Scripture seem so distant. But we know by your word that there is a day to come when everything is exactly the opposite. And so let that night, uh, let that understanding come to us even now as we study things from long ago and begin to understand your plans for the future or at least, Father, the, the glory and the majesty of what you have done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One day during rush hour in downtown New York City in Manhattan, American jazz pianist George Shearing, he was a famous jazz pianist and he was particularly notable for being blind from birth. So he had learned to play piano as a blind man. He lived in New York. One day he was on a busy intersection in Manhattan. If you've ever been to Manhattan, you know what that looks like, right? It's just mass of people and cars and taxis and so on. And this is years before they had all the beeping, talking things that help you get across the street. So he would just come up to the street and he'd stand there. And he had a cane, and it was pretty clear he was blind. That wouldn't be hard to notice. And he would just wait for some kind person to say, do I need to help you across the street? And sure enough, that would happen, and then he'd get across the street. Well, he was waiting in one of these street corners one time for this to happen. And finally, someone tapped him on the shoulder. And, of course, he's assuming this is somebody who's about to help me. Only as he speaks to the person, it turns out it's another blind man seeking him for assistance. And so what do you think he did? Well, as he tells the story, he says, what else could I do? I took him across. (laughs) He said it was the most thrilling 30 seconds of his entire life. And uh, I love that story because, you know, what? there's a simple phrase to describe exactly what that scene was like, right? The blind leading the blind, right? And in today's chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 9, you have, in spiritual terms, you have exactly this scenario. You have a true blind man physically But you'll find characters as well who are blind spiritually. And the two interact is such a comical scene. I don't think John wrote it for comic effect, but it has that effect. And it is probably the best chapter in John's gospel if your intention is to address the gospel. In the ninth chapter, John tells the story of a man healed by Jesus of blindness. It's because the act of restoring physical sight to a blind person is such a beautiful picture of God granting understanding to us spiritually. It's because of that, I think, that it is so prominent in his miracles, of course. The most common miracle Jesus performs across all the Gospels is restoring sight to the blind. And it's particularly the case for why this chapter exists. 
In fact, the Old Testament regarded the ability to restore sight to the blind as a uniquely divine power and therefore a sign of who the Messiah was. If someone came with the power to restore sight to those born blind, that was a sign that they were the Messiah. We'll study more of that in a minute. While each of those moments of healing of the blind becoming sighted again, each of those is remarkable in their own way, this chapter stands out, in my opinion. This miracle is closely connected to the events of the prior two chapters that we've been studying. And as you remember, going back into chapter 7, we've been in this period of the Feast of Tabernacles. And though it's three chapters, and actually it will run all the way into chapter 10, it's still all the same week. And for the most part, we've been focused on the last day of the week. That's where chapter 8 was last week. All Israel in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple. And of course, as Jesus was there teaching, remember they were debating over his identity. So there's this division in the nation over who he is. And as a result of that division, the nation forfeits their opportunity to receive him and receive that kingdom. But remember, as we studied this last week, I also said that though the nation as a whole has rejected Christ, there was still opportunity for the individual Jew within the nation to be brought into saving faith by a recognition personally that Jesus was Messiah, so that the fact that the Israel as a whole was rejected didn't change necessarily the prospects for an individual according to God's grace. And chapter 9 records one such example. And as a result, it serves to illustrate the contrast between what the nation was seeing in chapter 7 and 8, particularly in 8, with what was going on for the individual within Israel. So as the nation was rejecting, the outcasts of Israel were receiving once again, the nature of saving faith is front and center in this story. It's really at the core of what John is trying to communicate through these events. So let's read the text that opens the chapter. I'll read verses 1 through 5. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus leaves the temple. This is a, right at the end of what we saw last week in chapter 8. He's in the temple. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles ends with the, the ending of the water drawing and the lights ceremonies, etc. And now it's time to walk out of the temple. And as he does so, he comes across a blind man, one we're told who has been born blind, and that gives rise for this dialogue between him and the disciples. The disciples begin it. They notice the man as well. And they turn to Jesus and they ask him to settle an age-old debate within pharisaical Judaism. And the debate centers on the two options that they present to Jesus as plausible explanations for why this man might have been born blind. Thinking about the question just for a moment, why was this man born blind? It's clear just from the question that they're assuming God is not capricious. That when he does something, he has a purpose in it. So they're trying to uncover the purpose in God's causing the blindness for this man. That assumption on their part is exactly right. No one is born blind except that God permits it and, and makes it so. The question then becomes, why would he ever want someone to be born blind? Now, the first suggestion that pharisaical Judaism had arrived at was that this man was born blind as a result of his parents having sinned prior to his own birth. And that teaching was a common misconception among Jews in the day. And it comes from a misunderstanding of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, which states in part that the Lord will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and onto the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And from this teaching or from this verse of Scripture, 
the Pharisees had come to teach and others had been had assumed that blindness was one of the ways that God would visit the iniquity of a parent upon his child or her child. Now, as strange as that thinking may be to you and I today, the next suggestion that comes from the disciples is even stranger because they suggest this man's own sin was the cause for being born blind. Yet he's born blind. So how could he have sinned in such a way to result in his own blindness at birth? The Pharisees taught both of these as possible answers to the question of why is someone born blind. The second one is they believe that a child could have an inclination toward evil while even still in the womb. And they would cite, for example, out of Scripture, the struggle between Jacob and Esau in the womb from Genesis 25 as proof that you can have evil intent within the heart of a child even in the womb. That being so, the question still comes, well, how then could a prenatal child, even with evil intent, how could they commit sin in the womb? Well, they taught that if a baby was kicking in the womb and kicked the mother, then that baby was striking the mother, which is a violation of Exodus 21:15, which says it is a sin to strike your mother or father. Therefore, they propose it's possible for a child to have sinned in that regard within the womb, and therefore God may strike that child with blindness as a punishment for their sin. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time teaching why these are false. I'm hoping that's not something we have to work hard to understand, but I will give a few thoughts to it. First, they are both false teaching. They're born out of a misunderstanding of God's word in both cases. This is so typical for rabbinical teaching in the time of Christ and still today. This idea that I can take a thought and run with it as far and wide as my imagination will let me. And as long as I come up with some plausible way to connect the dots back, you'll have to accept that my idea has some merit. And they began to distinguish themselves within different schools of Phariseeism based on how creative they could get at this kind of imagination of Scripture. They wrote whole books, the Midrash of their day. Midrash is their commentary on their Scripture, but the Midrash gained a prominence of its own such that it competed with Scripture for importance and became equal to Scripture in the minds of many Jews. And it's nothing but fantasy and thought run amok from people who don't know the Lord because they don't actually have a saved heart. They're not actually in communion with him and could have the mind of him by his spirit. They're just intellectuals talking about a God they don't know. And they end up at places like this. And look what Jesus does to dispel them. He says it was neither the option that this man would have sinned or that his parents would have sinned. God does not transfer, and the scriptures say this plainly in, in several places, he does not transfer the guilt of one person onto another, not in familial relationships, not in marriage relationships, not on any relationship. You will at times cause others to suffer because of your sin, but that's not the same thing as God transferring the punishment of one person to another as a result. And secondly, a child cannot sin in the womb. The natural actions of a prenatal child are not the intentional heart to strike a mother. In other words, Paul says in Romans that until the law came, I did not know that coveting was sin. Likewise, until a child is taught they cannot strike their parents, they don't know that striking your parents is a sin. We move people to an understanding of what is wrong before we count it against them. But that doesn't mean they're sinless. Remember, we don't say you're a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're born a sinner. It's the nature of a human being to sin. You come into the world with a heart destined to sin sooner or later, one way or another, and continually. And until the heart's replaced, till the soul's replaced, till the body is gone, you can't fix that problem. So they're half right. The child in the womb is evil. And so is the one that comes out of the womb. And they are all continually so until that body is replaced and the heart is changed. But that doesn't explain why he's born blind. The fact that he had that nature wasn't why he was born blind. If that were the case, by the way, if it, if it was the nature of the heart that caused us to be blind physically, who could be born with sight? 
So he's not unique in that regard. Instead, Jesus said, this man was made, notice that word, made to be born blind. Now, who made him to be born blind? We, we can fill in this blank. God, right? Who else makes a man? So he is made to be born blind by God so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, the works of God, Jesus is describing here, is the healing miracle that he's about to perform, of course. That's the whole point. If the man hadn't been born blind, there'd have been no one to heal at this moment as he walks out of the temple. That should be easy to understand, right? So in order for Christ to perform the works of God in this man's case, then it had to be that the man be born blind. The messianic miracle, in other words, is going to be performed here and now, the one in which a man born blind is cured, so that there can be clear proof Jesus is Messiah. That's the work that now needs to happen. There were three messianic miracles in the teachings of Judaism that when the Messiah came, there'd be three distinct miracles that he and only he could perform, and when he performed them, it would be clear proof that he is Messiah. You see in the text of the Gospels, all four, the truth of this coming out in the way the crowds and the Pharisees would react each time one of these three was performed. Chapter 9 is one of the three. The three are healing leprosy, casting out a mute demon, and giving sight to a man who is born blind. In the law, there is a provision for what priests are to do should a person be healed of leprosy. This is in Leviticus. If a man comes to them having been healed of leprosy, they're to go to the priest, they're to sacrifice. There's this routine spelled out in the law for what's to happen when a priest receives someone at the temple who has been healed from leprosy. But here's the thing. In all Israel's recorded history, no one, there's not a single record of any Jew ever having been healed from leprosy, which begs this question. Why is this provision in the law if it's never going to happen? Well, it only happened under the time Jesus walked the earth. And every time, you remember in Luke's gospel, he's approaching Jerusalem right before his crucifixion, and he has those ten men come up to him, the lepers, and he heals them all, and only one comes back. He sends them all off to the temple to go do what the law said. This is the one time you can do it. Let's go do it, right? Nine go, one comes back and worships Jesus, you know, that, that moment. That's the fulfillment of this law, of the need to go to the priests if you have been healed. So they said, if you see someone healed of leprosy, that's the Messiah. Number two, exercising demons. But in this case, if a demon could not speak through the mouth of the person, you couldn't learn the name of the demon. And if you couldn't learn the name of the demon, then you couldn't cast the demon out because he had to be cast out by name. That was the way God had, had allowed Jewish rabbis to exercise demons when God cared to let them do it. But if the demon didn't speak through the vocal cords of the human being, you couldn't learn the demon's name. And if you couldn't learn the demon's name, you couldn't cast him out. God reserved that unique circumstance for his son so that when his son does it, it's like a calling card on the Messiah. You see that at several points in the Gospels. And then lastly, blindness that comes upon a person after they're born can sometimes be corrected. Naturally, sometimes you lose your sight for a while and it comes back. Sometimes medicinal remedies of one kind or another can be of use to get your eyesight back. But never in history has anybody born blind ever been cured of blindness after birth. So when that miracle is done, the teaching was you're looking at the Messiah. So by his words, when Jesus says this man was made blind so that the works of God could be demonstrated in him, what he was saying is he was born this way so that the Messiah could heal him. And in so saying that, in so doing, Christ is declaring to the disciples quite plainly, I'm going to show you I'm the Messiah. The concept that God can make someone, in this case blind, or perhaps with some other infirmity, the concept that God is doing that, so as to bring himself glory in some respect, that runs completely counter to our modern view of life and health and physical well-being. Wouldn't you agree? 
our very way of thinking about our own health takes it for granted that God wants us to be healthy, doesn't it? Can we consider that it's God's plan for our life that we include physical ailments and limitations? Almost certainly all of us at some point, right? And some of us from birth in significant ways. God's plan for you likely includes sickness and injury or a defect of one kind or another. And in each case, those conditions are his prerogative. We're the clay. He's the potter. He can do whatever he wants with our body. As long as it's bringing him glory, why would we want to stop him? The question is, do we use them that way? For example, as you face trials in life that these things bring, like sickness and health issues of one kind or another, do they influence your perception of yourself and of God? Do you even consider and understand the principle that God may assign those infirmities to us for his glory? Are you turning them to that purpose? Or do they just become excuse or reason to complain? For example, consider the man born blind. He was helpless, wouldn't you say? He had no hope for a cure. Whoever healed a man born blind? No one. And he had no reason to ever think he was going to get his sight. Only the healing act of the creator himself could have reversed a condition like this that existed from birth. What do you think his attitude was? We don't have it recorded. We don't know. You're going to see what his attitude is after he's healed, though. On the other hand, how many of us have options that he didn't have for correcting or attempting to correct physical ailments? Are we as quick to credit God when we are healed as he will be when he is healed? And if that healing doesn't come when we want it, can we be content trusting there is something in it that glorifies God? Jesus then says, moving forward in the text, he says, we must do the work of the Father. Now, who do you think we is? A lot of commentators go in one direction. I think the, the proper direction here, though, is he's talking about himself and the Spirit. For we know in the Gospels that Jesus does all the work that he does by the Spirit. They, he and the Spirit, must do the work of the Father as long as it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. He's speaking of this unique time when Jesus walked the earth to testify to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was absolutely essential that Jesus would work miracles during this time as evidence of his claims. And they were all, all that he did, all that he said was eternal testimony. Everything the Father had purposed for the Son to do had to come to pass. So he says we have to do these works. And as long as he was in the world with the Spirit, it was a time of light on the earth. He says, I'm the light of the world. It's day in that sense. But once he departed the earth, the earth experienced and is experiencing a period of night. Now, it's night in contrast to what day was defined to be. Day was defined to be the light of the world in the world. He's not here today right now physically, so we are in his place, but that doesn't make us equal to him. So the light of Christ in the world is the, the light of the Messiah literally present on the earth. That light existed for a time, and in that time there's work to be done, and we have to get it done. It's just that simple. This guy had to be born. He had to be made blind. He had to be sitting here on the right day. I had to pass by him. We're going to heal him. This is all part of the plan. It can't not happen. But after he leaves the earth, it's dark in that sense. I'm not walking around routinely healing blind men, and neither are you. There's a difference in what he was doing versus what we're doing. And in the same way that he said to his disciples, they don't fast now because I'm with them, but when the bridegroom leaves, then there will be time for fasting. There is a period here of waiting and of wanting him to return, and we live in it now. So having explained the man's predicament and having set up the reason for Jesus' action on his behalf, which is about to happen, then he proceeds to heal. And now it gets interesting. Verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, there are several aspects of this story that are so interesting, unique and, and intriguing. And here we see several of them. First, 
Notice that this man never requests Jesus' healing. Nor does there appear to be any conversation between the two. Nor does Jesus ask him, do you want to be healed? There's no invitation. There's no response. There's one moment, the guy's sitting there, blind and unaware of his surroundings. Next minute, some guy's smashing mud on his face. That's literally what happens here. He's being assaulted by some passerby. Or so he must have thought, right? Now, my guess is he heard a little of the conversation, so he's kind of perked up about blind people, and next thing you know, it's, what's going on here? We'll come back to that in a minute. But the second unique aspect of this healing is the way Jesus chose to do it. This is the only healing recorded in Scripture of all the things Jesus does, where he uses a physical substance in the process of healing somebody. That fact tells us he didn't need the mud. I mean, the fact that he can do this elsewhere without mud is proof in itself. He didn't need the mud. But, of course, he uses the mud, so we're really interested in why he does this. He takes clay from the ground and spittle, and he applies it when it becomes mud to the man's eyelids. It's not like open your eyes, stick mud in your eye. It's close the eyes over with with the mud. This is clearly unexpected, both to the man himself and even to us as students. And, as I mentioned, it's presumably unnecessary. It's an extra step. And as a result, it's always intrigued Bible readers or Bible students. Was there something supernatural in this substance? Or was there some special message hidden in the fact that he used dirt and so on? Well, the answer comes later in this story, so we'll hold on for that. Before we go further in the story there, let's take note of an important subtext here. This is something we're going to bring up at multiple points tonight, and it's the main message of the chapter. This subtext is, you have a lot more in common with this blind man than you may think. Like him, we were all born blind. We were all born with a birth defect. We entered the world, the Bible says, in a fallen nature, a defective spirit, one that we inherited from Adam. Even David, the king of Israel, acknowledges this of himself when he writes of himself in Psalms 51. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. There is an original sin leading to a depraved and fallen nature in every human being from birth. And that was handed down to us by our parents. So you can literally say we inherited it like any other birth defect all the way back from Adam and Eve. Ironically, the Pharisees were onto something when they said that a man could be born blind because of his parents' sin. There is truth in those words more than they realize because it isn't the blindness of the body that we're talking about now, but rather the blindness of the spirit that is the result of our parents' sin and of their parents and their parents that we then receive. So it is the case that even before you take your first step of sin, you have been born a sinner by nature. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So our sin prevents us, we've learned already, from seeing God truly, much less knowing him in a personal way. In fact, Romans says that we were born enemies of God elsewhere in Romans. Isn't it ironic, though, that the world is so obsessed at times with finding God or religion? In reality, though, they stand as his enemy and they are incapable of finding him. It's the analogy I've used before of a person locked in a dark room with no light, trying to grope around to find something that's in the room without any hope to ever stumble upon it. Which explains, by the way, why the world is so good at making up gods of their own to go off and worship. Because if you can't find the real one, you've got to come up with something. And so we make gods in our own minds, our own image. And we make them out of stone and and clay and make statues and put symbols on walls. And we define a whole system and it makes us all feel good, but it's not anything closer to God than before we started. Because the world does not have access to God, our conscience 
is incapable of finding him on our own, and we try to fill that void in the forms of religion or perhaps materialism, money, sex, power, ego, career, relationships, whatever. We'll fill it somehow, right? We aren't going to sit and do nothing. None of us ever fills that vacuum, though, because you can't fill a vacuum that's designed to be fit by an infinite God. You just can't. So our spiritual blindness is similar to this blind man in another way as well. There's no solution for our defect to be found among men. This man had no hope for a cure on earth. The only hope for his condition was that the creator himself would provide a solution. And unless God healed him, he would remain blind forever. Obviously, John wants us to see this parallel. Wouldn't you agree? And it's going to get even deeper as we go through this story, this parallel between this man's physical condition and what Jesus does for him and our spiritual condition, the world's spiritual condition and what Jesus does for that. So as we move ahead, continue with me as we look at these parallels. Meanwhile, there's still more mystery here to uncover. Jesus, we're told, applies the clay to this man's eyelids and then tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then we're told the man does this. He goes, he washes, after which he gains his sight. Now, I love looking at this story from the perspective of the man himself. We already started that with the whole mud moment, right? Let's keep going with him for a minute. As we already said, he never asked to be healed. No one ever suggested that this was going to be healing. Now, no doubt he welcomed it. I'm not saying anything other than that. But what was he thinking when Jesus applied the clay? Jesus never addresses him. He must have been thoroughly confused by the entire affair. So Jesus tells this man to go wash. But from his perspective, why would he? Jesus didn't mention that this will result in your sight being gained. He merely told the man, without any explanation for why, get up, walk to this pool and wash off. Now, you remember from last week we talked about this pool, the pool of Siloam. You may remember this is the pool from which the priests had been gathering water every day for the water drawing ceremony associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember, they'd have a procession with these pitchers. They go down, they get the water. The people that were there at the pool would enjoy that and get engaged in the ritual. And then as it was going up back up to the temple, there'd be a lot of celebration back the whole way. All right, that pool is a considerable distance from the temple. And it involves a very steep climb. It's a long sloping climb back down to the pool and back up to the temple. So it's not an easy walk, much less if you're blind. And it's not an important pool, not from the standpoint of healing. There's no story in Scripture associated with people being healed at the Pool of Siloam. That's not what its reputation was. It was associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, which is not a time of celebration for healing. It's a time of celebration for coming into the kingdom, which is a different thing altogether. So all this trouble to go wash off mud, to stumble down a road. He probably knows how to get there, but it's not going to be easy. And he's doing it for what reason? Reasons he doesn't, presumably doesn't understand. So why did he do it? Well, the command that he's hearing, of course, is the word of God. He's hearing a command of God via the word of God, spoken by Christ. And while the word might sound foolish to some of us or to the world generally, it is the power of God in the heart to compel men to respond. So without a word, this man gets up and responds to the word of God to go wash. It's interesting that Jesus sends them here because we remember Jesus declared himself to be the source of living water while they were meanwhile taking water from this very pool and pouring it out in the temple not long ago, right? So we've already understood that the water itself has been compared to Jesus and his saving power as the living water. Secondly, the pool would have been busy this time of day and this time of year. In this week, this was a happening place. This was a center of the feast. So if you weren't in the temple participating, you'd go to that place. It's another key place in this festival. In this feast. So it's going to be busy. There's going to be people all around it, bustling. Probably the priests might have been there. At least some of the leaders of the Pharisees would have been around. 
So what it seems as though is Jesus selected this pool for maximum symbolism, given its meaning in the Feast of Tabernacles, and for maximum public exposure. As this blind man enters the pool area, stumbling around with mud on his eyes, I'm sure it didn't surprise people too much that he's stumbling. They probably knew of him as the blind man. He's always stumbling. What's the difference? And yet, as he comes up out of the water and he's healed, that's going to make an impression on this crowd instantly. And sure enough, it has its intended effect. Verse 8, therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, well, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So he's causing a stir, just like we said he would. They're all so astonished. They're so astonished they can't even believe he's the same guy. You look just like him, but you can't be him. So they ask him, what happened? Who healed you? And he says, Jesus healed me. Now, clearly the man knew of Jesus. Probably because of the commotion Jesus had been causing that week, or perhaps because of his past healings in Jerusalem. I don't think it's strange that this man would know of Jesus. He was, he was a rock star. There's no, no surprise in that. And so he retells, this is what Jesus did. This is what he told me. This is how I listened. This is how I obeyed. And I have sight. And at this, the crowd says the obvious thing. Well, then where is he? We've got to talk to this guy. We've got to meet this guy. And at this point in the narrative, we come to understand, we can piece together the reason Jesus used clay to heal the man in the process. First, we know this man was born blind, right? And so when Jesus first approached this guy and performed the miracle using the clay, we can safely presume that this man could not have picked out Jesus if he could see him because he's never seen anybody. Right? So he's no idea what Jesus looks like. And we can also assume that this man's eyes were healed in the very moment that Jesus touched him. For that's the way all of Jesus's miracles work. In fact, it's the opposite. He'll tell the centurion, go home, your son's just been healed from a distance. So as Jesus pronounces healing, it's it's happened. There's no warming up to it. So the safe assumption is when Jesus touched him, he was healed. But because Jesus applied mud to the guy's eyes, he couldn't open them. So though the man was likely able to see from the very start, this technique that Jesus employed prevented him from seeing until he was a distance from Christ and in that pool. And so Jesus sent the man to walk away from him before allowing the man to have him recognize Jesus, to know him by face. Secondly, we know now why Jesus sent the man to wash in the pool. It wasn't the water in the pool that possessed any power to heal this guy, right? That all comes from Christ. It's because of the pool's significance and the living water of the Feast of Tabernacles illustrates that there's more going on here than just the physical healing. And the surround of witnesses are there to see the man's testimony. Can you see a beautiful picture of salvation forming here in all of these details? Think about how we are saved by faith according to Scripture and how closely that parallels what's happening to this man in a physical dimension. For example, we are saved, we're told in Scripture, because the Lord does a work in our hearts causing us to be born again, not as the result of an invitation and a response, but he put it in our hearts when he chose to, while we were sitting there unaware he was even there. And we all come from dirt, right? We're all fashioned from the dirt, just like Adam is. So likewise, if we're to be born again into salvation, we have to be, as it were, started from scratch again. In the same way that God made Adam from dirt, Jesus applies dirt to this man's face as a symbolic way of saying, you're going to start life anew. You're going to be born again in my power as I can do so. So it comes upon us when we don't expect it as a gift 
given to us before we even know to ask for it. We are struck by the gospel. We are arrested by it in our heart. And its effect is to heal us of spiritual blindness. But God always has a purpose of glorifying himself in that work. It's never for our own sake. This man was not granted blindness just because Jesus thought it'd be nice if the guy could see for the second half of his life. He was struck down blind so that when he was healed, this would be a testimony of God. Similarly, we are born blind so that the works of God might be shown in us when we are brought to faith. For that's the only explanation you can give me for why anyone is allowed to be born an enemy of God. So that some will be brought to the other side as a testimony, as a work of God. Thirdly, following our conversion, what are we told to do? What's the first command of Christ to every believer? Go wash in water. Now, when you walk down to the water for your baptism... Are you already believing? Well, you must be. Otherwise, it's a meaningless act, right? Otherwise, it has no spiritual significance. If it's not a result of you believing in Christ and therefore wishing to obey him, then it's nothing more than a bath. It has no spiritual significance because the water itself does not heal you. But what does it do? It puts us in a position, in a ritual, in which, in a public way, witnesses see our conversion and inquire about its source. And there is yet another reason why Jesus uses mud in this healing. By the time the blind man could open his eyes, where was he? A long way from Jesus, as we already said, never having set his eyes on his healer. He couldn't have identified Jesus physically, even if Jesus had been standing there at the pool during all of this commotion. So what does he do? He declares Jesus to be his healer, giving praise to a faceless savior who he only knew by how? By the words of that savior. So when the people ask him to produce the person who did the healing, the man is without an answer. He can't identify the guy. He can't satisfy the skepticism. And yet his newfound sight continues to intrigue them. They're in a box they don't know how to get out of. If they are ever going to know the truth of what happened to him, the only hope they have to know that is if they accept his testimony concerning what he heard in God's word. So Jesus has devised this really clever means of healing, which allowed him to remain in the shadows while placing his word front and center as the source of this solution. The man has only the word of Christ to credit for his transformation. It was Christ's word that cured him, Christ's word that commanded him to go to the pool, and now it's that word that he testifies about. And as you might imagine, that event caught the attention of the religious leaders who were everywhere in Jerusalem in this festival week, as you know, and they were particularly interested any time they heard stories of what Jesus was up to. So the word gets around quickly about a healing. Jesus is at the center of it. So verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And then there was a division among them. There's the division again. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, well, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, Well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. 
Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak of himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said he is of age. Ask him. The final day of the feast week was considered a Sabbath day, which also made it a high holy day in the law. So to hear tales of Jesus healing on the Sabbath were of great concern to these guys because they imagined that a law God gave to men is a law that he's bound to himself. They then concluded that this could not have been a healing brought about by God because in order to do it, you have to violate the Sabbath and God wouldn't violate his own Sabbath. Therefore, this couldn't be God's power at work. It had to be explained in some other way. And of course, they typically ran to Satan as the source anytime they wanted to in order to explain what Jesus was doing and in so doing commit the unpardonable sin again. But we hear there's another division here, another group. These Pharisees on the other side are disputing what they're hearing. And they're saying, look, you can't explain this any other way. A sinner can't do what he just did. It sort of precludes the possibility that he's not acceptable to God. What they're both really arguing about is what's the degree of God's involvement in this scenario? Is God behind this? And if so, of course, well, what does that say about our approach to this man? But the ones who don't want to accept Jesus as from God are going to find any reason they can to explain away what he's doing. Because they're not looking for a new God. They already have a God of their own making. It's called the Law of Moses. And it suits their purposes just fine. And it props up their authority in the culture and gives them all they need. They're not interested in uncovering the truth. They're only interested in discrediting those that oppose them. So in this case, they go to that tactic of looking for a way to discredit the miracle. And so they go to the man's story. And the most absurd thing of all, they say, well, he must have never been born blind. As if the rest of Jerusalem wouldn't have known this man sat out begging for all these years, right? No, he's just been faking it. Because that was a preferable lifestyle for him to to pretend he's blind. They're working so hard to discredit him because if they agree this man is born blind, what have they just admitted? Remember, only the Messiah can heal a man born blind. They would have to then be admitting, by their own teaching, by the way, that if a man could ever come and heal a man born blind, that you're looking at the Messiah. They're in a box. They refuse that teaching. They can't go back on what they've taught in the past. They have to explain it away some other way. And so they call the parents and they put them on the spot. Now, you have to understand the pharisaical approach here. They are not concerned with whether the truth is the man was born blind or not. That is irrelevant. They need two witnesses to claim that he was not born blind and the problem is solved for them. They don't care if they tell the truth. In fact, they're hoping they don't. And they put them under this pressure that says, if you don't agree with the side we're on, you're out of the synagogue. So now tell us, was your son born blind? They're afraid of the Pharisees. So moving forward. They call the blind man back because they just said, let's go talk to the son again. Verse 24. So a second time they call the man who's been born blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, well, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you not want to become one of his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to him, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. 
This scene is played for comic relief in a way, but it's just the way it turned out, right? The blind man stands there before these esteemed religious leaders and he engages in a debate. His fearlessness is obvious, and I think you don't want to miss that. Here's a guy who, who's not at all worried about whether these guys are upset at what's happened. What they want out of him, though, is they want him to testify that the man who healed him was in some way a sinner. So this is tactic number two. If I can't discredit the events, I need to discredit the reputation of this man, because if you can tell me he's a sinner in some regard then that testimony will settle the matter because God can't be a sinner, which is true. And so they're looking to discredit Jesus. But this man's not going to give in to the pressure. He's not going to let them have their day. First, he says, you know, you're not really interested in the facts, are you? Because I've told you this whole story already. There's nothing new I can add to what you've already heard. Ironically, the previously blind man has discernment to see through the tricks of these sighted men. He says to them, you evidently didn't listen to my story closely the first time, and your interest here really intrigues me. Is it because you want to become his disciple now? You just seem to fall in love with this guy and you just want to know all about him? That's a mocking thing, right? It's clear that he's trying to mock them a little bit. And that enrages the Pharisees, of course. And then look at what they say. They say, no, we're already disciples of Moses. Notice what they don't say. They're not disciples of Jehovah, the living God, right? They're disciples of a man, of Moses. So often unbelievers will speak in more clarity than they realize about who they really are, right? My favorite example, when you ask someone if they're a Christian, oh, no, but I'm very spiritual. <laughs> Basically, what they're saying to you is, I have no clue. It's just out there somewhere, and I just, I can feel it, but I really don't know how to even name it. Much less have a personal understanding of who God is. Much less have actually come to know him in reality. That's what they're saying, but they don't understand it that way. They think it's saying something useful to me. And then the healed man goes a step further. He mocks the Pharisees a second time. He says, now, isn't this an amazing thing? He says, you claim that you don't know where this man came from. In other words, you don't know his origins. You don't know if he's from God or not. And yet, it's clear to everyone at this point that he healed a blind man, a man born blind. And so, you know exactly what this means. You're just working hard to avoid saying the obvious. Since there had never before been a man cured of blindness from birth, the conclusion concerning Jesus' identity is self-evident. Ironically, it's self-evident because of the Pharisees' teaching on this issue anyway, on the fact that this would be a messianic miracle. This man has been transformed, this blind man has been transformed by Christ, and so now he can testify with boldness and confidence concerning the one who healed him. And he has yet never laid eyes on Jesus. This is the confidence that faith in Christ imparts. We have even less physical change to reflect upon than this man did. This man could see clearly now when before he was blind. That much he's not confused by. But in a spiritual domain, as we come to faith, what tangible evidence do we have, especially initially, of the fact that we've been saved? What could we point to in the physical realm to prove to someone that something has happened to us, to allow for us to substantiate a claim that we've come to Christ? The Bible says in time, with the fruit of the Spirit, there will be evidence. But certainly it's hard at first, isn't it? We see our own transformation by the word of Christ, but it's subtle. And we have no proof for that. As such, it is faith by design. I mean, we don't have to convince ourselves. I'm not saying we're in doubt. I'm saying if you had to go outside yourself and explain to someone else what's happening, where do you point to? You have nothing but the word of God to point to. In other words, you're forced by the method to move beyond yourself and into an evangelistic mode, even in trying to explain what happened to yourself. If someone says, how do you prove you're Christian? I say, well, look at the Bible. This is what I was hearing that changed my heart. And you're already talking to them about what the Bible says. God's way is so miraculous because he does so much through his word that we have no choice but to replicate the process as we try to tell anyone about what happened.
Which is what this man is doing. It's exactly what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel, at least in terms of the identity of Christ. And he concludes, look, you don't want to listen. This isn't about a confusion over the facts or a true fair trial. This is about you with a heart that doesn't want to know the truth. And so he mocks them even further. Though this man lived on faith in God's word for a time, there was a point, eventually, when he sees Jesus face to face. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out. Now that means putting him out of the synagogue. In other words, they have excommunicated him from Judaism. So Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So this is such a a beautiful ending. Finally, the blind man meets the one who healed him. And notice Jesus seeks this man out, hearing that he's been put out of the synagogue. Hearing that he's been rejected by his own people, Jesus finds an opportunity to introduce him to where he should go now, obviously, to something new that will care for him in the absence of Judaism. But notice who finds who. This man doesn't go find Jesus. I mean, I'm sure he wanted to, but he wouldn't have a clue where to start. Jesus finds him. And that makes sense, of course. In the case of this man's physical ailment, he wouldn't have known where to go. Jesus finds the man and asks him if you believe in the Messiah. When he says son of man, it's a messianic term. He's asking, do you believe in the Messiah? And of course, he says, well, yes, I believe in him. Just show me him so I'll know and I can worship him. And to that, Jesus says, first, you have seen him. Past tense. What Jesus is saying is that even before this moment happened, as I stand here before you now, the blind man had already seen Jesus. How has he seen Jesus, though? By accepting the word of Christ, he had come to know Jesus. To know the word of Christ is to know him. To have experienced the word is to have been in his presence. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to recognize him, just know his word. And until he chooses to make himself known to us physically, until he seeks us out, finds us, and appears before us, that's the only way we do have to know him. And it's sufficient. And Jesus says that to this man. You have known me. You're not to say to yourself, until I see him, I don't know him. But yet, you will see him. And the man worships as he comes to know him. Clearly, he understood he was in the presence of the living God and and he worshiped at his feet. And when he does this, he creates another beautiful picture of the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. This blind man represents the way Jesus grants believers eyes to see and ears to hear spiritually speaking so that we would know him truly. While at first we only know him by his word, which is more than enough, that is knowing him truly. Nevertheless, there will be a time after this period of darkness when the light will return into the world. And when he returns, we will see him face to face and we will dwell with him. And that, friends, is what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about representing. This future occurrence of the kingdom and the arrival of the Messiah face to face. The really interesting, beautiful part of chapter 9 is the way Jesus is showing in one man's life the full cycle to include the moment when we will finally see him. And faith is no longer required in that respect. Now we are with him face to face. We truly will worship with him because we will dwell with him. And all of this happening in the midst of a world that has all the data they need to make the right conclusion. And yet they refuse to believe because they are spiritually blind. Notice how he ends the encounter. Verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. 
But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Jesus says he came into the world for judgment's sake. This is a strong contrast to things he says elsewhere when he says he did not come for judgment. The word here is being used in a different sense. By judgment here, notice how he finishes it. He says, so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. What he means is, my appearance will set people in a position where they must choose whether I am Christ or not, whether I am Messiah or not. I am forcing a judgment concerning my identity. No longer can you say, I am all for the Messiah, in theory, before he ever comes and before you're forced to make a decision. Everyone can say they're for the Messiah. That's like us all saying we're for world peace. Well, everyone's for world peace until they tell you the the plan to get there is to take your home and property and your country away and give it to the enemy who wants it. Oh, well, that's not what I meant when I said I wanted world peace. Well, Israel was all about the Messiah, in theory, like a mascot, like an idea. But when the actual guy showed up, he forces a judgment. I came into the world so that those who were blind, those who were elect to believe and God brings them to faith, would come to know me. While those who claim to see, meaning to be spiritually knowledgeable, spiritually aware, intellectually elite, would miss me because they don't accept the foolishness of God, Paul calls it. So he says, I came to set parents against children, children against parents. He's pointing out that I came to divide. By divide, he means I came to clarify, to force people to make a conclusion to concern me. And friends, of course, you start with no. Everyone starts with no. People who say, well, I'm agnostic. I don't really have an opinion about Christ. Okay, you just answered no. Because if you accept him as Messiah, you say yes. If you don't accept him as Messiah, you say all kinds of nonsense. And that nonsense can include, I'm not sure yet, I'll let you know when I finally get there, I'm still evaluating. Well, I don't necessarily believe in Christ, but I do believe in going to church every week. Or whatever nonsense people try to tell you to just walk around what is truly a no. We're all born no. By grace of God, some of us arrive at yes. That's a judgment in itself. And it is the case that in God's providence, those who do not see... Those who are unenlightened spiritually, those who are the downtrodden, the blind laying on the ground begging, are the ones that God is inclined to receive to him. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, he says, There are not many among you who were wise, there are not many among you who were strong, there are not many among you who are noble. He says, because God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and he chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and the things that are ignominious to shame the noble. It's his purpose. It's not chance. It's not random. He's not out there just saying, anyone can come to me. Let's see who shows up. He's saying, I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to choose you. Why? Because you're the weak things of the world. You'll shame all those strong who think they have it all together. The ones who say they see won't get it. The ones who acknowledge they're blind are the ones I'm pulling in. Because it glorifies me more to do that. And it's all about maximizing his glory. This is not about us. It's not about you. It's about God's glory. And whatever gives him the most glory is why he created the world to begin with. And he's working that plan. So at this point, the Pharisees who are overhearing all this, there's some that are always tailing Jesus. They were always spying on him and they hear this and they say to Jesus, we're not blind, are we? In other words, they're asking him, you're not talking about us, are you? Because if that's the case, man, just hold me back. Hold me back. I'm going to go after you. That's really what they're saying. They're, They're looking to pick a fight and they're wondering if this is their chance. Jesus disarms them with a response that I'm sure they could not understand. They think he's speaking physically here. They think he's, or, or at least intellectually, right? You're stupid, you're blind in that sense, right? And they're mocking him because they think he's just making no sense now. He responds with this fundamental spiritual truth. If a person is to gain spiritual sight, you first have to understand and acknowledge that you are spiritually blind. In other words, everything you think you know, you have to be willing to admit, okay, I didn't know what I thought I knew. 
All that intellectualism that I was leaning on, thinking that's what made me someone who was a force to be reckoned with in conversations of religion. Okay, now that I hear the Bible properly and I see what God is saying, I realize I'm an idiot. I'm speaking from personal experience, friends. You look at the Bible and you say to yourself, I don't know anything. What I thought it meant to be a Christian, what I thought it meant to go to church, what I thought it meant to be religious. Okay, I realize now that was me playing a game with myself and with God. And now I'm ashamed of it. Now I'm scared to death of it. Because I realize there's a God who's going to judge me one day and I'm not ready for that. I've been playing a game. The Bible calls this repentance. It is the expectation that anyone who would come to Jesus as Lord must first humble themselves in personal recognition that they are sinners and without God. They don't have to stand on the street corner and say it. They don't have to sign an affidavit. It's not about embarrassing us. It's about in our own hearts an acknowledgement to self. I know who I really am and it's not who I want to be. It's not about confessing all your personal sins. It's not a laundry list of behaviors you're repenting from. That's impossible. I can't even remember the sins I did two days ago, much less all I've ever done. So it's physically impossible to repent in that sense. That's not what the Bible's asking. It's asking for someone to literally come to a recognition of who they are absent God. And then in do, doing that, acknowledging that we are in need of a Savior to cure us from our spiritual blindness because there's no other hope. There's no other person or entity or solution that's going to offer that. And as you do that, as you come to that repentance... The Lord does a work in our heart. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And to that person who stubbornly claims that they have spiritual understanding, though they remain ignorant, Jesus says to that person, because of your stubbornness, you remain in your sins. Without repentance that leads to salvation, no one will see heaven, and so it was with the Pharisees. So then, how can you be cured of your spiritual blindness? What's the, what's the solution? If you're blind to God at birth, what hope do you have to cure your own spiritual blindness? How do you reconcile yourself to God? Because you can't cure yourselves, and there's no one else who's going to do it for you. You can't turn to another man. So you have to turn to God. You have every opportunity, just as the Bible shows in this man's example, to turn to the Lord who offers you salvation through the gospel. If you have heard the words of Christ, those words can save you. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There's no one who's been born a Christian. But by the power of God, through the faith that I have in Christ, I now see, spiritually speaking, I can see. And like the blind man, I came to witness through a baptism. And I come even now as a witness to what has been done to me, declaring to you and calling upon you, be reconciled to God. Behold his son Christ, who died in your place, that you might live to him. And if you know this to be true, but you've never made that public confession, don't let another day pass without that confession. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if you've been given that gift of sight spiritually, then you need to make that faith known to someone. God knows it, but the world needs to also. Jesus says, and I'll end on this, Luke 12.8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for curing us of our spiritual blindness. Thank you, Father, for caring for our physical bodies, for the life we have on earth. Never let us make that more important than the former. And Father, I pray that as we have now come to know you and we have obeyed your words and washed in water to symbolize that newness of life, I pray, Father, you would give us the heart to go out, to be sent with this word and to preserve it in its authenticity from Scripture, to continue in the message that saved us and then to share it with as many 
as you may send our way. Allow us, Father, to be that witness for a time. And thank you, Lord, for the teaching of your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.